Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth. And it really is an honor, my friends, to be journeying with you on this all-important, very theologically rich, yes, but also practical letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And if we have learned anything up to this point as we are going to wrap up our reflections into chapter 3 this evening, it would be how applicable it is, and how 2,000 years later, here we are, struggling with all of the same things that the church of Corinth was struggling with 2,000 years ago. It really is amazing to just pull back and consider that one simple fact. Here Paul, writing to a church 2,000 years ago, was struggling with the very thing that the church struggles with today. And why is this the case? Well, my friends, because 2,000 years later, we are still vested with the flesh. And so while we live in a different culture and in a different setting, the bottom line is we are going to struggle with the flesh. We are going to seek power, prestige, and pleasure. We are going to seek professions and positions and, and possessions that drown out the spiritual life. So we are mindful that Paul's words really do apply to us today. I know I've had uh, several of you make that point to me, and yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I could not agree more. And as I say several of you, I do want to recognize those of you who continue to take time out of your very busy schedule, just not locally and, and statewide or nationally, but internationally. I'm always so humbled to see that you are listening in Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Canada, Mexico, uh, Croatia, Ukraine, France, Portugal, Spain, uh, India, China, South Africa. It is very humbling to know that uh, you are journeying with me and again taking time out of your busy schedule. And does this not speak to the universal church? <laughs> does this not speak to the fact that the Spirit of God, bearing witness to the one truth that God is truth and love, transcends culture, <laughs> transcends culture. And while we learn from one another in who we are and where we come from, the Spirit of God and the God who is love and truth speaks to all of us. Okay, with that, let us return to Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth. We are in chapter 3 verses 16 to 17. And like I said, we will probably wrap up our reflections into chapter 3. We will just see how we do. I have some reflections prepared for the opening verses to chapter 4, but there are some very important things to talk about here in chapter 3, still yet for sure, so we will do so. All right, so turn your Bibles to verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, 
for God's temple is holy, and that temple you are. Okay, when we hear the verse, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We should first be very mindful that it is Paul who is writing this epistle, right? Paul, who was once Saul, who was the prized pupil to Rabbi Gamaliel, huh? who we read about in Acts 5. Rabbi Gamaliel was the rabbi of rabbis. It was said of Rabbi Gamaliel that when he died, the glory of the Torah died. I mean, think about that. Think about that statement. When Rabbi Gamaliel died, the glory of the Torah died. What does that mean? Well, it means that the great Rabbi Gamaliel brought illumination into the first five books of the Bible, understanding them like no other. And why is this important? Because Paul, once Saul, was his prized pupil. He was so versed in the Old Testament. When Paul is talking about the temple, we should regard the importance of the temple of the Old Testament, which Paul clearly understood as not only the center of the earth, but the place where God dwells. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? I mean, Paul understood that when you thought of holiness, you thought of the temple, that which was set apart, that which was holy, that which was the center of the Jewish life. The Hebrew word for holiness is kadash, set apart. Uh, and so when Paul then says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He is saying that you are called to be set apart. You are called to be set apart. A man who knows what the temple is all about, like so few others, is now telling you and I, we are that temple. We are that sacred vessel. We are that place of offering. We are that place which is called to be pure, worthy of, of sacrifice. I spoke to it the other day, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. What does Paul say there? I'm sure thinking about the temple, right, when he says, our very lives are to be a spiritual worship, a holy and acceptable offering to God. What is his context? Well, that we are God's temple, and consequently, we are made to be holy, holy. When Jesus in the Beatitudes says, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God, the Greek word there for pure is katharos, katharos. It translates an Old Testament word that speaks to offering, pure offering. This is important because we are made to see that our purity is necessary because we are called to be a holy and acceptable offering unto God. Here we should regard the word profanity, a word that comes from the Latin profanum, which literally means outside the temple. So when God uses those very strong words to condemn profanity, he does so because it leads to a life outside the temple, outside that which is sacred. You know, this whole discussion of 
what it means to be holy, what it means to be set apart, has me thinking about what we set apart. If you have your calendar handy, go to your calendar right now and look what you've written into your calendar, just not maybe for today, but tomorrow, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, what you've mapped out for this week. What have you set apart? Is it a relationship you are in? Is it something that you're going to buy for someone or maybe for yourself? Are there errands you have to run? What kind of errands are those? What have you set apart? What do you see worthy of your time? Incidentally, the word worship comes from the same word as worthy. What we hold to have worth, we worship. Isn't that interesting? Right? <laughs> do we set apart things that we in turn over time worship, that we idolize? Ask yourself, are the things that you have set apart, are the things that you have set aside drawn you into holiness? I am not saying that all of these things that you have set apart are not about holiness. In point of fact, I'm saying the opposite. Everything that you have put into your calendar should be about holiness. But my concern is that we get so wrapped up in the busyness of our days that we forget about God. Maybe we should be writing into our calendars time set apart for God. That is something I actually do. I, I make sure that I put into my calendar on my iPhone my prayer time, and it reminds me to pray. It reminds me to pray. And so this is something we could think about doing, huh? If we are not setting time aside for prayer, then all of those other things that we are doing can be lost to the winds of busyness. <laughs> and that would be very unfortunate. So the things that we set apart, the things that we find value and the things that have worth in our lives are things that should draw us deeper into holiness, are things that should make us more holy. And they're only going to make us more holy to the extent that all of it is caught up in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So make sure you are setting time aside for Jesus Christ in prayer, because my dear friends, <laughs> he has the highest value. His life is the greatest net worth, if you will. And this truth certainly is very important. All right, let us turn to verses 18 to 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise and their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So let no one boast of men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ's is God's. Okay, I love that last verse. Now, Paul said everything, not everyone belongs to you. And then he goes on to list those things as the world or life or death or the present or the future all belong to you. 
What does he mean by this? And what does this have to do with the problem of rivalries? You know, when one feels that the need to boost one's ego, one grasps at things that will give one the sense of importance, right? Such as whose coattails maybe do we hold on to or do we ride on? But Paul senses that the grasping for identification with one leader over another is symptomatic of a much deeper human compulsion to what? Possess. To pad one's security with ownership of things, even of persons like, as he notes, Paul, Apollos, and Peter. Paul wants to convince his people that belonging to Christ has set them free from those compulsions if they will but claim that belonging. Is this not similar to our Lord's teaching that those who seek first the kingdom of God will attain everything else besides? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, another one of my favorite New Testament texts. So the key to owning everything, ironically, is being possessed by another, a person. You belong to Christ and Christ to God. And this is very important, my friends, because I don't know if we can say we ever possess God as much as it is God possesses us. Does this not speak to the nature of love? You belong to Christ and Christ to God. To have Christ, my friends, is to have the divine life in us. And to have the divine life in us, then, is to have what in us? But love. Love. And what is the definition of love? Love is to will the good of the other for the sake of who but other. Love never controls, but more importantly, seeks an even greater spiritual freedom for him or her, for his or her sake, right? And let us be mindful. We do not only love those who, who love us in return. That is not God's way of loving. We love those who we struggle with the most, is that not the essence of the gospel? Does not our Lord talk about this very thing on the Sermon on the Mount? For what reward would, would you have if you love and are kind to those who are kind and love you? Ah, but those who, who hate you and revile you are not those the ones we are called to love? Not resent, but love, but forgive. I was reading an article recently, and the author of this article made an excellent point. We say that it is so much easier to resent someone as opposed to forgive them. But is that true? Is that true? That's the question posed by this particular author of the article. And in essence, the point he was making was, no, actually... It is much more difficult to resent someone than to actually forgive that person. Now, why would he say that? Because ultimately, we spend hours upon hours resenting people, justifying our resentment with this hate, with this anger, 
that is like a poison to the soul. We go through all of these scenarios about what they have to hear or what they need to know because of how they hurt us or someone that we love, as opposed to forgiving them. If the divine life is in us, then we have the power to forgive. Now, some of you may be saying, well, Joe, but it is so difficult to forgive. It is humanly impossible to forgive. How can you or anyone else suggest that forgiving is easier than resenting? Well, that's the point. Forgiveness is humanly impossible. Does not Mark 2, 7 say that forgiveness itself is a divine act? And does it not speak to the need for God's very life and love to live in us? To forgive is divine. To resent is human. I mean, I don't know about you, but everyone I have talked to, including myself, I am speaking to myself right now, have filled up hours and hours of Again, going through the scenarios about all these things that one or two particular people need to hear because they have hurt me or, again, hurt someone I have loved, my friends. To forgive is to truly be free. And the act of forgiveness is always mindful that we are all human. We all come up short of the kingdom of God. And maybe in your mind... The thing that someone has done to you, you have never done to someone else. But be rest assured, my friends, there is something you have done that has hurt someone. Why? Because you're a sinner. We are all sinners. We all do things that hurt other people. And I don't want to sit here on air and dwell on this as much as call it out for the deeper understanding and moreover calling we have to forgive to forgive. We all have blind spots, right? We all have blind spots. And by that, I mean, we can be heading towards Jesus Christ on the right path and not know that the back right light is out. So we need someone else to tell us that the back light on the right side is out. We have a blind spot. And that back right light might be someone you've hurt three years ago, five years ago, seven years ago, unintentionally. Maybe you were just insensitive. Lord knows I've been there. We have to be humble. We have to be humble and understand that to forgive is divine and to resent is human. My friends, if you are questioning what I am talking about as it relates to sin, just turn your Bibles to the first epistle of John, chapter 1, verse 8, and read that carefully. Meditate upon it and understand the significance of it. First John 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we are present to the reality of our own sin and mindful of our need for mercy. Free not only yourselves, but time up <laughs> with a new agenda, an agenda that is filled with love, not resentment, 
I mean, maybe it's as recent as today. Maybe it's as recent as these last few hours. You are playing out these scenarios in your mind and in your heart about all the things that, again, this particular person needs to hear. Let go of that. Don't allow Satan to bind you up in chains. Call upon the greatness of the love of God. Allow God to invade heart and soul. Allow God to work in you. Be free. Be free. This is what God wants us to see. You know, St. John Paul II liked to use the word imagine. Benedict XVI liked to use the phrase, let God surprise you. I want to bring both imagine and let God surprise you together. Imagine a life of forgiveness and let God surprise you on the other side. And what might you find on the other side? But a freedom you've never known. Even if you have every reason to resent someone, what do you do about it? What do you do about it? Let it go. Allow God to intervene. Let God in. Be a revolutionary and forgive. Let God in to that moment of resentment. Let God in to that moment of anger and let God surprise you. And imagine, imagine a world without resentment and anger and God will do great things. Let us turn our attention to chapter four and this opening verse. This is how one should regard us as servants of God and stewards of the mysteries of God. All right, so chapter four, for the most part, is about the ministry of the apostles. So he opens up this new chapter with this heading, if you will. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So who are the stewards? Well, the stewards, in its historical context, are the house managers who are in charge of their master's estate. It refers to the spiritual ministers who are called to manage the affairs of God's household, the church, and the mysteries of God, the revealed truths of the new covenant, which were hidden in ages past but are now manifest through the gospel. To an extent, they remain mysteries because the human mind can understand the divine work of God only in in a limited way. But mysteries as they are, we seek to understand. We should mention here, my friends, that the Greek word for mysteries, mysterion, translates as this religious encounter with God, an encounter which is inexhaustible. You've heard me speak to the mysterion as the inexhaustible love of God. So the mysterion, in its most technical sense, is this religious encounter with God, which is at once inexhaustible. Now, what's really interesting about this is the Latin word that translates mysterion, would you know, is sacramentum, sacramentum. What do you think of when you hear the Latin sacramentum? Well, the the seven sacraments, of course. 
And do we not think about the seven sacraments as the great mysteries of God? What is Paul saying here? This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul, on a level, is saying to the apostles, to the first priests and bishops, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. We are stewards of the sacramental life of the church. And the sacramental life of the church is a life that draws the people of God into the life of the church. Remember what I've said in the past about mystery itself. I mean, we are fascinated by mystery, are we not? We are fascinated by mystery. We spend millions of dollars to discover what lies beyond the stars. We spend equal amount of money to discover what sits at the bottom of our ocean floors. Why? Because we are fascinated with mystery. It is not a coincidence that all of the top programming today is caught up in what? Mystery. CSI Miami, CSI Las Vegas, CSI this, CSI that. It's all about mystery, my friends, because we all love what? A puzzle to solve. We all want to figure it out. Well, if that is the case, which I believe it is, what does that say of this spiritual life? Should we not be figuring out the mysteries of God that we might better understand God who is love? Does that make sense? So in this opening verse, while Paul reminds his ministers that they are first servants, which in of itself is quintessential to the spiritual life, they are stewards, stewards of these mysteries, which all of us are called to seek to understand, to seek to understand. Okay, we will stop here and pick up next time with verse 2. If you have any questions, comments, observations about this evening's subject matter, please don't hesitate to send a question my way, or if you have a question in regards to anything as it relates to uh, the Christian and Catholic life, please do not hesitate to send your question on its way. Again, Thursday is set aside for uh, your questions, and as I'm getting your questions, our Thursday programming is filling up for weeks, if not months, to come. And up to this point, it has been very apologetic, but be rest assured, you can ask me anything, and I will make a point to uh, do my best to answer your questions so that you might be able to continue to uh, go deeper in in your journey of faith. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of this time that we have together, a time where you call us to seek to understand that great definition of theology, fides, corens, intellectum, faith-seeking understanding, that by the gift of faith that you have given us in baptism, we are empowered to better understand your mysteries, and above all else, that great mystery that is love itself, that we allow that love to invade our soul through and through, that we might give you glory in all that we do. Amen, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.